Okay. Good morning, everybody. It's a light crowd today. The cold scaring everyone away. Hymn 655. It's our last week. Our last week on this hymn. Move to something new next week. 655. 655. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Curb those who by deceit or sword would wrest the kingdom from thy Son and bring to naught all he has done. Lord Jesus Christ, thy power make known for you our Lord of Lords alone, defend the Christendom that we may sing thy praise eternally. O Comforter of Christless Word, send peace and unity on earth, support us Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and gracious Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on your faithful people. Keep us steadfast in your grace and truth. Protect and deliver us in times of temptation. Defend us against all enemies and grant to your church your saving peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Congregation at prayer. The verse of the week is from Romans chapter 10. Let's speak this together. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Okay, yes. Faith comes by hearing. hearing. This is important. Why is the word hearing so important? I talk about this all the time. There's two words we could use for the thing you do with your ears. The first one is hear. The second one is listen. Why do we make a big deal about hearing and not about listening? Uh, no. Because hearing is passive. If you're listening at the door, you are actively trying to figure out what's going on on the other side. But if you hear what's going on on the other side, the sounds that are happening in there are hitting you passively. You're not trying to hear them, they just, you are. Okay, so hearing is important because it is passive. So this is your assignment. One Sunday when you come to church, even though we print the propers on the little half sheet, I want you not to follow along when the readings are being read. Faith comes by hearing, not by reading, not by following along. Don't worry, if I make a mistake, you'll still be able to tell even if you're not following along. Okay? Uh, hearing. The Shema. Hear, O Israel. Your Lord is your Lord uh, Yahweh is one. Hear. Everything is about hearing the, uh, the word of God that comes to you, that hits your ears. And hearing by the word of God. Now, what does this by mean? How do you hear by the word of God? Okay, you pay attention to it. What is it, Jim? The Word. Okay, where is the Word, though? What do you pay attention to? When you read the Bible. Okay, when you read the Bible. I'm thinking of something really, really, really specific. Something that only happens in church. Yes! The preached Word. So the word that is preached, the word of God that is preached, goes forth 
and it hits your ears, and by the power of the Spirit, does what? Creates faith. It creates faith. It kindles faith. It nourishes faith. It feeds faith. It strengthens faith. All of this is by the Word of God that is preached. Okay, let's speak this again. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Okay, Catechism, what is the third article of the Creed? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus in, in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. Okay, just a couple quick things. Who is the he? In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, sanctifies. Who is the he? Yeah, Holy Spirit, okay? Just making sure we're all on the same page. The Holy Spirit does this. Uh, how does he do it? How does he call, gather, enlighten, sanctify? The verse of the week always goes with the catechism. The Holy Spirit does all of this by the word. By the word of God. And then finally, forgive, he forgives all my sins, but not only all my sins, the sins of all believers. There is a personal nature to faith, but not a private one. Christ does forgive your sins. When I give you the body and the blood, or uh, I give you the body, the body of Christ given for you, okay? It's for you. There is a personal nature to faith, but it is not private because it is communal. He forgives your sins, each and every one of you, Jesus died for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for all of you. All your sins are forgiven. But he also forgives, in the same way, all the sins of everybody else as a community. A community gathered and focused around the Word of God. Questions? Okay, children, away with you. <laughs> okay, I have a few more things to say. Uh, and we're going to have some fun. So, he okay, so hearing. By the word of God. Now here's the question for you. What is, whoops, I don't want green. What is the difference between what is said right now, this is an English lesson for you, between what is said right now and what would be said if it looked like this? Do you see what I, do you understand what I did? Yeah, the word is Christ. Okay, yeah, see? It's like Lord if it's capitalized or not. Right. So this is, so this is a, I don't like this about the ESV because sometimes when the ESV translation sees the word in the Greek kurios, kurios, um, which is, of course, Lord, that's where we get the Kyrie eleison, which is Latin, but it's dirty Latin because it's just Greek that's been transcribed. They said, well, we're not going to come up with our own thing. We'll just use what they, well, I'll fix it. It's, it ain't broke, okay? So you say your dirty Latin, and you say, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us. Okay, so it's Lord, Kyrie is Lord, that's the Greek and the Latin. Um, but sometimes what the ESV will do is it'll see that and it'll translate it as Sir. So like the, what they say to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Uh, 
just grinds my gears. Is it incorrect? Not really according to sense, but the word Kyrie is a specific word. And Lord is something different than Sir. A Lord is somebody who is above you, somebody who guides and leads you and has your best interest at heart. Saying Sir is just a form of respect, right, Larry? Your time in the military, but yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Or just, I don't know, if you had strict parents. Uh, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Uh, okay, so it's a form of address to somebody who's better than you, but Lord is something more because it's also a title. So that's why that's always better. But, yeah, so what, it's a, if it, is it a lowercase w or is it a capital W? Well, we're going to talk about this for just a little bit here because I think it's so interesting. If it's a capital First of all, let me back up a second. I'm going to preface this by saying it doesn't have to be either or. It can just be both. It's like the trick question about, well, is it law or is it gospel? It's a, it's a dumb question because it's both. <laughs> it doesn't have to be one or the other. The word of God isn't one or the other. So this can be both. Now, if we think about it with the lowercase, like how I talk about it in opening, the preached word. So we say, call that, let's see, find a synonym for it. What would we, what's another word for word as we talk about it being preached? Like if you come to church, what, what do we call that preached word? The gospel. Yeah, the gospel, okay? So lowercase w, by the word of God, you can also understand that as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Mark, this book is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the, the word of God, the message that is being spoken, that is delivering uh, the, the words and deeds of Jesus. But if it is delivering the words and the deeds of Jesus, like we believe that it is, well, then it's also a capital W, because where the words of Jesus are and where the actions of Jesus are, there who is. Somebody said something, and I want you to be bold. Yes, Jesus. Don't be shy about your answers. Uh, I'll give you credit if you're right, and I want to do that because it's fun, okay? Um, yeah, it's, so it's, it's Jesus. Uh, where the word is preached, where the words of Jesus are, Jesus is there. Where the deeds of Jesus are proclaimed, Jesus is there. Why do we preach on the gospel? Well, why do I preach on the gospel instead of on the epistle or on the Old Testament? Because when you come to church on Sunday for the divine service, the entire service is designed to give you Jesus. Remember when we did that study on the liturgy and I had that fancy little diagram that I spent way too much time working on. Okay, every single part of the liturgy points to the next part and the next part, but it's all a big spiral. It's like when you pull the when you pull the plug on the drain and the water starts going down, it doesn't all just go it, It's kind of cool. It swirls a little bit and every circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it drives at that point it's trying to hit. That's what the liturgy does. Every single part of the liturgy is designed to point you to Christ and then you're pointed to Christ. Why? So that when you see him, you recognize him because he's coming and he's going to give himself to you. So hey, the whole liturgy goes like this. Hey, hey, this is Jesus. This is what he does. That's him over there. Hey, Jesus has done this for you. This is him over here. Oh, he's getting close. Jesus is here. He's, and now he's here. That's the liturgy. And then when that's done, you say, wow, look at that guy back there. That was Jesus. And I got him. And now I'm going to leave here. But that was Jesus. And well, I can't wait to come back. And now I'm going to depart in peace because that guy right there, I just have Jesus. Okay, that's the, the, everything points you to Jesus, the whole thing. So you preach on the gospel because it's Jesus. Because my job is to give you Jesus. And that's where Jesus is. I preach about Jesus. The word tells you all about him. It gives you to him in spirit. And the Holy Spirit always does one thing. If... Uh, if Brian Ulrich uh, were here, I would ask him what we talked about in midweek. Because it was this, what does the Spirit always do? Always points you to Jesus. The word that is preached, never about the Spirit. It's always about Christ. It's always about Jesus. Hey, so, when we think about it then with a capital W, 
the Word of God as in the person of the Word of God, and that faith comes through by hearing by the Word of God, the person of the Word, it raises some interesting questions. First of all, it's a ministry. And not all, it's not any ministry, it's the apostolic ministry. That Jesus says, lo, I am with you, even unto the end of the age. He breathes on his disciples and says, if you forgive any their sins, they are forgiven. His spirit rests upon them like the mantle of Elijah rests on Elisha. The mantle of Jesus rests on me because it's been passed down to the apostles and they passed it down to the next generation. And that same spirit of Christ gets passed down. Why do you think we do the laying on of hands? All those pastors come in. It's not because they want to be cute and cuddly. But there is a very real thing going on where you're being brought into this office of the ministry. That this apostolic order, this Christ-birthed mandate to preach the gospel in season and out of season, to deliver Christ to his people, to be the under-shepherd, the steward of the mysteries and the gifts of God, and to take care of the flock. Like he says to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. That is the job that is passed down, the apostolic order, the mandate. That is the ministry. I will give you my words. I will give you myself. Give me to the people. Here it is, the word, capital W. So, now we have this. You get Jesus in baptism, right? Okay, yeah, I got, there's a lot of silence there. <laughs> That's a Sunday school answer, folks. Okay, yes, you get Jesus in baptism. Now, um, where else do you get Jesus? Yes, in the body and the blood. And then if we also think about this with a capital W, that you're getting Jesus in preaching as well, in the word, well then, let me ask you this. Is preaching a sacrament? Okay, well, why do you say no? It wasn't instituted by Christ. Preaching wasn't instituted by Christ. I'm going to have to go oh, ahead and disagree with you. I'm going to have to go and disagree with you on that one. <laughs> you can't say that the guy who is the Word of God didn't institute the preaching of the Word of God. But there's no physical. Breathed on his disciples. Go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. But it's not the same as baptism and... Why not? They all give you Jesus. There is, there is water and word. There is um, word and the bread and wine. I'm going to give you a pass on this because you're not a regular attendant here. But if you, if you are a regular attendant, you'd know this. The gospel, the gospel summed up in one word is what? Touch. What happens when somebody talks to you? What happens to your ears? Okay, but what's going on in there? Think scientifically. If I'm talking to you right now, you're hearing me. How are you able to hear Because the word and the breath that carries the word touches your ears. So you're telling me that in preaching, Nancy, because I'm listening, I am a student at your feet here. In preaching, the word comes out of the mouth, is carried by the breath, hits your ears, touches them, and then does something to you, sort of like what St. Paul says. That sounds an awful lot like something physical to me. Here's my next question to you, because I know many of you balk at the idea of a different sacrament. How many sacraments are there? This is my question to you. How many are there? Are there seven? That depends on what church body you're part of. <laughs> that would be my elementary upbringing. Yeah, so if you're a Roman Catholic, there are seven sacraments. You are... I'll, I'll give you three quarters of credit on that one, Teresa. Now, for us Lutherans, how many sacraments are there? Okay, somebody say it loudly. You think there are two. Are there any more than two? Three, everything comes in threes. 
What happens in confession and absolution? There's the office of the keys, confession and absolution, and the preaching of the word. Ooh, it's an open Bible. All the sacraments are right there. Yeah, up, up front, there's, the, there's baptism, communion, and the Bible, the word. And then on the back side, the other round window is confession and absolution and the office of the keys. Well, what happens when I absolve you of your sins? I will use you later. There's touch. There's touch. So this is the question. How many sacraments are there? There are at least two. If you read in the confessions, Philip Melanchthon and Martin Luther both say, we don't really care how many sacraments there are. You can call confession and absolution a sacrament. You can call preaching a sacrament. You can call all this stuff sacraments. The stuff that's instituted by Christ, that delivers Christ to you, where Christ touches you, that's a sacrament. We know that there are at least two, because the two biggest ones are the Eucharist and baptism. But, quote, we aren't going to, uh, we don't think it matters putting a number to it. What's the point in sitting down and counting it out and saying there's only this many? So there could be two, at least. There could be three, there could be four, there could be seven, there could be 13. The number isn't what matters. What matters is the mode. What matters is what is given. And that's not just some punk kid making stuff up. That's right from the Book of Concord. That's right from the Augsburg Confession on the number of the sacraments. The number doesn't matter. There's at least two. That's all we care about. Anything else that gives you Jesus can also be considered it. So this is me opening your eyes and trying to broaden your horizons. And eventually we'll go through the large catechism and some of the Augsburg Confession. We'll talk more about this. But the opportunity presented itself and it's too much fun. It's too much fun to introduce new things and make you, give you something. No, not, I never want to make another little stupid, but I like to give you meat to chew on through the rest of the week. Remember, you, uh, you take the word of God and you chew it like a cow chewing cud. Yeah, pastor said this. Okay, I think I understand a part of that. Well, listen. Okay, that's, that's the whole week. If the sermon makes you do that, great. If the Bible class makes you do that, great. If the readings from Sunday, if the propers make you do that, even better. Because I don't really matter. This isn't a one-man song and dance. Well, it kind of is. But it's just not this one, man. Okay? Think about that. Questions? Okay. Back to the Ten Commandments. You remember that last week, now we kind of rushed through a little bit last week. Last week, we talked about the introduction, so I'm going to sum that up for you. You were not a people, but now you are a people. And I, I want you to be a people. You didn't have a father, so I became your father. And I want to love you. So, excuse me, when, when the Psalms uh, or the prophets when they talk about God gives justice to the fatherless, uh, to widows and to orphans and to the fatherless. <clears throat> Things like that. It doesn't mean anybody who doesn't have a father or anybody who had an abusive father. It means everybody. Because it always ties back to this. You were a fatherless people. But I have become your father. I am a father to the fatherless because all of you, yeah, you might have a flesh and blood dad. Otherwise, you wouldn't exist. But you were without a father. But I will be your father. And I will love you and I will take care of you. And these are all the ways I will show you that I will take care of you. 
and then he gives you 10 words. So the first word, uh, don't take candy from strangers. That's essentially what he says. Uh, don't take food from strangers. I have the stuff that I want to give you. Don't talk to strangers. Don't take food from them. Don't listen to what they have to say. This is going to be for your good. I know they kind of look cool and they're attractive, but, but they're not good for you. And you parents know when you've had kids um, that want to hang out with a certain crowd. Well, don't... I know as a parent, I'm not the cool person, but those guys are not the cool persons. You don't want to be spending your time with them. Why can't you hang out with Johnny next door? He's a nice boy. Okay. Why? Stick, stick with the things that are good for you. And I talked a little bit about an idol, too, and I want to just, I want to hit it home for you. How to identify an idol. Um, you know, Luther says that an, a, a false god, an idol, is anything to which you look for your greatest good, anything in which you put your trust. Which is fine. That's a, that's a good definition of an idol. The thing that you look to for your greatest good. This is how I'm going to say it, paraphrasing all of this, giving you the sense for sense. The idol is the thing in your life that you can't live without. The thing that if it were gone, you'd think your life was not worth living. Sometimes it's a dumb thing like football. Well, doggone it, if those chiefs don't get their act together, my life isn't going to be worth living. Or those Huskers. Or those Hawkeyes. Or those Packers. Okay? If that's your attitude, in the words of Jeff Foxworthy, you might have an idol. Sometimes it's a little more complicated. Sometimes an idol can be made of a person, someone that you love. A child can be an idol. A grandchild can be an idol. A parent or a grandparent can be an idol. A pastor can be an idol. That's... It's, we can all joke and laugh about those doggone chiefs getting their act together, but when we start talking about children, grandchildren, grandparents, relatives, people you love as turning into idols, ooh, now that starts to cut deep because every single one of us here has at least one. This, there's a great quote by one of my old professors. And he said, you Lutherans, you don't know how to preach. Because you think that when you stand up there in the pulpit and you tell people that they're sinners, that people are listening to you. And they're not. Everybody knows they're a sinner. Okay, all right, let's get on with it. I know I'm a sinner. Oh. But, if you start preaching a sermon and telling people that their kids are little rotten sinners, then you'll hear about it on the way out of church. Because nobody thinks their child is a sinner. Guilty. Because <laughs> you love your little monsters, and they'll annoy you, but you love them to death. And you, it's fine and dandy to, for a pastor to call me a sinner, but don't, don't talk about that little kid like that. Don't, don't do that. Don't call them a little pagan before you take them to the baptismal font. So, uh, <laughs> those, think, think about that when you're trying to consider idolatry, when you meditate on the first commandment. What is the thing, or what are the things uh, that you cannot live without and that would make your life not worth living if you didn't have them? It's a hard, hard, hard thing. Then you would think we all have an idol. I can't think of anything. You can't think of anything. That I couldn't live without. Okay. Why about Daryl? <laughs> Let's not go there. 
doesn't have to be a thing. It doesn't have to be a thing. It can be a person. It doesn't even have to be a person. It can be just the relationship. Here's another thing. Sometimes even church can become an idol. When you decide that you need church so much that you neglect all your other duties, that you neglect being a father, that you neglect being a mother, that you neglect your work to go to church, then church becomes an idol. And it's hard to consider that something as good as church could become an idol. But here's the newsflash, friends. Any good gift of God can be misused and perverted. Marriage, sexuality, communion, church, baptism. All great gifts of God, but all have the potential to be corrupted. So think about that. Questions? I know that's, that's sort of a weighty segment there. But I just want to impress upon you, I give you sort of lighthearted examples when I say, oh, don't talk to strangers, don't take food from strangers, don't go get your candy from that person there, get it from me. And in a way, that's what God is saying. But the reality of it is that who that person is that he doesn't want you to talk to or spend your time with or eat from, it, uh, it changes from person to person, but it can be somebody close, it can be something close. So the ten, this is, by the way, why any time you break one of the Ten Commandments, any time you trespass one of them, you automatically transgress two. Because any time you break any of the other ones, it's because you have created for yourself a God. And then you go against the first one too. Because here's the bottom line. Sin, base level, is pride and rebellion against God's word. Every single sin you commit is looking at Jesus and saying, Ah, uh, no thanks. So, anytime you say no thanks to Jesus, it's because something more important than Jesus has popped up. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Do you have a question? <laughs> you have that face. The face that says you're mulling things over and potentially have a question. Okay, well you have my Yeah, you have my number, you can call me. <laughs> okay, alright. Now open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter twelve. One, two, twelve. And while you look at that, while you get positioned, I'm going to read you the second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Okay. Okay. Let's think about this. Let's think about this. What are the positives? What's the other side of the Grand Canyon line argument for this one? Well... God is your father. You who weren't a people, he has made you into a people. You fatherless, he has become your father. Okay. He's given you uh, everything that he has. He's given you his full self, and he wants you to continue coming to his full self and receiving his full self and not going down the street to Baal's house or down the other side to Moloch's house or down the block to Arrowhead Stadium's house. That was supposed to be a joke. But nobody laughed. Uh, okay, well, I guess maybe, uh, maybe we're hitting some nails on the heads here. <laughs> okay. Um, but here he says, okay, yeah, I'm giving you my full self. And not only that, not only do you have me, you have my ear. And anything you need, you can come to me. You have my name, you have my number, give me a call. Come to me. If you're angry with me, I won't be angry with you for being mad at me, and you can tell me all about it. I'll let you in. I'll sit you down on the couch. 
and we'll just have a nice chat. Come to me. Use my name. Call on me. Ask me for anything that you want or need. And I'll tell you all the things that I, you're guaranteed I'm going to give you. All of this stuff. You have my name. All the different names. Use them. Call upon me. So, uh, you have power. But, this commandment also asks you to use your power responsibly. And we're going to look at that right here. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Okay, you're using, is that the Lutheran Study Bible, Jim? Yes. Okay, that's an ESV translation. I'm going to give you a little bit of what the New King James says because I think it's really cool and also kind of funny. God comes to Abraham and he's, uh, he, Abram, excuse me, and he says, get out. <laughs> the ESV is more polite. Go, depart. But the New King James, hey, get out. This is the land where you live. Get out of it. Pick yourself up and march yourself on out. And I'll tell you where to go, but not quite yet. Just start walking. And don't worry, I'll lead you and guide you. <laughs> now, just, you know, Ten Commandments and this whole study aside. Think about that for one minute. And it, you talk about the faith of Abraham. Well, look at it here. Hey, this is the land where your fathers and your grandfathers and everybody in your whole family has lived and grown up. You've got three, four, five generations here. Just get up and go someplace. I'm not going to tell you where. I'll tell you when it's time. I'll lead you. and I'll, Don't worry, I'll take care of you, but I want you to take everything and I just want you to leave. Get out. <laughs> and he says, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, now that's some faith. That's some faith. That's a faith that trusts that, yeah, God really is who he says he is. And, and you know what? He really is going to take care of me. I will just get up and go. Makes you wonder what Sarai said. He wants you to do what? Okay. Oh, just wait. Okay. Uh, but here's the, this is the part of it that I want to highlight now, talking about this second command. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. This happens just a few chapters later. Think about Abraham for a second. Abram. Do you remember where this happens? Where this promise is performed? Where it's enacted? Yes, in Egypt. Thank you, dear wife. Uh, in Egypt. What happens in Egypt? Yes, but I mean what happens to, in Egypt with Abraham? <clears throat> he goes, they're journeying, they're in Egypt. He has his wife, and she's really pretty. And what does he think? Well, uh, everybody's going to want her to be their wife. They're going to... Yes, exactly. He says, you're, just, you're going to be my sister. And then what happens? Someone takes her, Someone takes her and they're cursed. I curse those who curse you. Uh, another example, and this is listed here. We're not going to look at it if you have your hand up. But Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. We don't have time to go through all of those chapters. But take it home and read it. So this is the, the most famous part of all of this is Balaam. Does that name sound familiar to you? Balaam? Balaam's ass? It's okay, it's a Bible word. He rides the donkey, and he's going to the camp of the Israelites to do something. He's going to curse them because some guy hired him. I'll give you this bag of gold if you go over there and you use your witchcraft and put a curse on the Israelites. And he said, okay. 
So he's on the mountain pass on his donkey, and an angel of the Lord appears, and, not, and it's the angel of the Lord with a flaming sword that bars the path. And the donkey sees it. Does Balaam see it? No, he does not. So this is, you know, the, the part of this that everybody remembers is what happens. He hits the donkey, and what does the donkey do? It speaks. Hey, wait, what's up, guy? Why are you doing this? Don't, don't you see what's in front of me? And I, the best part of that whole little narrative, when the donkey speaks, he just looks at the donkey and he says, well, you're supposed to be walking and you're not walking. He never stops to think, well, I've never seen a donkey talk before and now this one's talking to me. That's kind of strange. It's like old hat to him. The donkey starts talking to him and he says, well, now listen up, guy. I'm going to straighten you out. You're supposed to be walking. Hey. But the, the point is that the angel of the Lord appears. God is not going to let his people be cursed. And then he ends up using Balaam for his own purposes. And the guy who hired Balaam at one point even laments. Now, guy, I paid you money to put a curse on them. And the only thing that you've done since then is bless them. What's going on? Okay, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. What does this mean when we think about prayer or the name of the Lord. It means you have power. It means you never say, God damn it, or God damn you. Because you're calling upon the name of the Lord to do something to your enemy. And the Lord just might do it. Think about that. The next time someone cuts you off in traffic and you start going, God damn you! That's a prayer. That is not using the name of the Lord responsibly. Because you have a privilege and you have power in that name. And when you use it like that, that guy cut me off. I'd love to see him burn in hell for that. That's what you say. Use the name responsibly because it has power. The other power that you have, that when you, can, when you have the uh, ability to call upon the name of God in every trial, pray, praise, and give thanks, as the catechism says, you have the authority also then to use his name, which is why you don't say, God damn you, to anybody, but you also have the power to, this is going to sound strange, but you have the power to alter the course of nature, alter the course of time, alter the outcome of events. Why? Because God listens when you pray. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to kill all those people. And what? Who says what? Well, there's a few that still are good people. Yeah, who says that? I'll give you hints. The guy we were just talking about. Yeah, Abraham. Well, listen, though, God. Please, 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 please. I know they deserve it. This is a paraphrase, by the way. Please, please, please. I know that they deserve it but have mercy on them. I will intercede for them. I will stand in between you and in between them and I will say, for me, will you do it for me, Dad? And he says, for you, son, yes. So you have that kind of power because you are a son. This is why it's so important that you don't say, well, sons and daughters. I'm a girl, so I'm a daughter of Jesus. I'm not a son. No, you're a son. Because if you're a daughter, you mean nothing to him. Because then you're clothed in a blood that isn't the blood of Christ. You are a son not because of what you look like as a body. You're a daughter not because, excuse me. You are a son despite what you look like what your biological makeup is, because you're a son in Christ. 
You wear Jesus' blood, and that means that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you for who you are. He sees you for who you are made to be in Christ. You are sons because you wear the sonship of Jesus. That is why you also have the forgiveness of sins. You have life and salvation because you are inheriting what is the sons to inherit. Now, if you want to talk biology, sure, okay, you're a daughter of God. But if you want to talk theology, and if you want to talk about everlasting life and inheritance and all of that, you're all sons. St. Paul says it. You're all sons in Christ. There's neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. You are all sons. You wear the sonship. Now, I call you children. So you are sons and daughters to me. You are sons and daughters to the church. But you are sons to God. So you have the sonship of Christ, which means that you have the authority to stand and say, Hey, Dad, wait. I know that you want to do this, and I know that it's right, because everything that you do is good and just. But for me, would you consider doing it this way? For me, or how do you conclude a prayer? How about... For the sake of Jesus Christ, would you do it? There's an intercessor. So Christ, Christ stands between God and man, and he takes the wrath. He jumps in front of the lightning bolt that's coming to zap you, and he gets zapped himself. And uh, he stands before the heavenly throne, and he intercedes for you. He is a high priest. He makes a sacrifice for you. This is why the veil in the temple is torn. Why? Because you have an intercessor now. An intercessor before the heavenly throne, not before the earthly altar like the priests used to do. You have a new temple, the body of Christ, and you have a new intercessor, the body of Christ. So the temple is torn. Why? Because in Christ, as sons of God made sons in Christ, you have access to the Father. You can just walk right up to him and say, hey, give me some daily bread. And what father, this is a question from Jesus, not from me, what father, when his child asks him for bread, will give him a stone? This isn't hard. Daryl, if one of your children came to you and said, could I have a slice of bread, would you say, sure, here's a rock. <laughs> Not unless they were really bad, right? See, it's, it's sort of a silly thing. And when you think about even us earthly folk, us who are part of the original sin brand, if we know how to give good gifts when our children ask, when your son or daughter says, could I have a slice of bread? And you say, yeah, all right, go have a slice of bread. Could I have another slice of pie? Okay, have another slice of pie. If we know how to do that, how much more do you think God does it for you? Anytime the, the question is asked, how much more would God, blah, 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 it's always, well, a whole lot, much more, much more does God do that. So when you go to God and you say, hey, give me some daily bread. Forgive me my sins. I've forgiven others. Uh, forgive me, though. Let your will done be among us. Don't, if there's even just one righteous man, don't, don't kill him, please. And he listens to you. So, I have a quote that I want to read to you from Luther. And, uh, of all places, this is from a letter that he wrote regarding comfort for women who have had a miscarriage. And he writes this big letter but in it, he talks about prayer. And I want to read to you because he talks about the power of prayer. One should not despise a Christian person as if he were a Turk, a pagan, or a godless person. He is precious in God's sight, and his prayer is powerful and great. For he has been sanctified by Christ's blood and anointed with the Spirit of God. Whatever he sincerely prays for, especially in the unexpressed yearning of his heart, 
becomes a great, unbearable cry in God's ears. God must listen, as he did to Moses. Why do you cry to me, even though Moses couldn't whisper? So great was his anxiety and trembling in the terrible troubles that beset him. His sighs and the deep cry of his heart divided the Red Sea and dried it up, led the children of Israel across, and drowned Pharaoh with all his army, etc. When's the last time you thought of the drying up of the Red Sea as a prayer? It's more than God coming down in pomp like he's the leader of some parade saying, Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm going to split this sea in half. And there, aren't I great? I'm really big and powerful and cool. The Israelites pray. Lord, you said you would protect us. You said you would guide us and lead us. What are we going to do? The water is here. And he says, I hear your prayer. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. Deliver us, O Lord. I'm answering your prayer. Here you go. Now, just you go on across. Just wait and see what I'll do, okay? Go on, kids, go along. That's what it is. It's a prayer. And it's an answer to a prayer. And so great, I love this, so great is the cry even of the heart. You called me out of a comfortable place. You sent me back into Egypt. I endured a lot there. And now we're here and you said that you were going to deliver your people and there's water here. Uh, what are we going to do? I have all these people I'm supposed to take care of. Hey, just take a couple breaths, guy. It's going to be okay. Get along across the water. I'll take care of it all. That's the power of prayer. I'm continuing. This and even more can be accomplished by a true spiritual longing. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. The Lord knows what you're going to pray for even before you pray it. And he knows what you need and what you need to pray for and what your heart truly wants even when the words that come out of your mouth aren't really what you want deep down. Even Moses did not know how or for what he should pray. Lord, Teach us to pray. Not knowing how the deliverance would be accomplished, but his cry came from his heart. Um, among those who say that prayer has to come from the heart and who define from the heart as you got to just make it up, otherwise it's not a real prayer, this next statement ruffles quite a few feathers. And that is this. The Lord's Prayer is the greatest prayer a Christian could ever pray. If you don't know what to pray, pray the Lord's Prayer. If you don't know what you want, pray the Lord's Prayer. If you don't know who you are, pray the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Oh, it's written down, though. It's not from the heart. It is from the heart. It's from the heart of God. Now, which is greater? Some made-up thing where you stumble around and, oh, I don't really know what I'm supposed to pray. Oh, 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 oh. But i got to make it up. Oh. That or the prayer that comes from the heart of God that incorporates everything about his own person and everything about your own person in one nice little package. It says, hey, if you don't know what to pray for, use this. You have the power to pray, and even when you don't know how to use that power, I'm just giving, here's the remote and the manual. There you go. It's so easy. Our Father who art in heaven. Pray the Our Father. And what if you don't believe it? What if you don't believe that God is your Father? What if you, what if you don't believe that the will of God really will take place? Or if you don't believe that God's will is best for you? What if you don't believe that God is going to forgive your sins? What if you don't believe in the virgin birth? What if you don't believe that Jesus really is his son? What then? Hmm? Yes, you keep praying it, doggone it. Because just like with the creeds, it's not your intellectual assent. It's not your words. It's God's words. 
And the prayer exists just as much for you, even more so. He doesn't need to hear those words. They're for you to guide your prayer, to teach you how to pray, to work on you, and to teach you how to believe. Here's my name, here are my words. Use them. It's all going to be fine. Hey, Luther continues. Isaiah did the same against King Sennacherib. And so did many other kings and prophets who accomplished inconceivable and impossible things by prayer, to their astonishment afterward. That's a big thing, to their astonishment. Which means what? If you're astonished by the outcome of your prayer, you probably didn't have a whole lot of faith going into your prayer. <laughs> oh my goodness, well, would you look at that? God actually listened to me? Well, fancy that. If you are astonished by the outcome of your prayer, that's a good thing uh, because it means your faith is being strengthened. But it also meant that you didn't really know what you were saying or believe what you were saying. But before that, they would not have dared to expect or wish so much of God. This means to receive things far higher and greater than we can understand or pray for, as St. Paul says. Again, and now that we're getting into a really good story here with St. Augustine. As you know, I have a lot of love and respect for him. St. Augustine declared that his mother was praying, sighing, and weeping for him, but did not desire anything more than that he might be converted from the errors of his rebellious youth and heresies, and that he would become a Christian. Thereupon, God gave her not only what she desired, but, as St. Augustine puts it, her chiefest desire. That is, what she longed for with the unutterable sighs that Augustine become not only a Christian, but also a teacher above all others. Now, that's a really good example of this. God will always give you that for which you ask in prayer, or he will give you something better. So uh, then when you pray, too, keep all of this in mind. And, and here's a good example. Uh, God is not always going to answer prayers when or how you think, but you always know that he will answer them, and the answers will always be for your best. So it's like this, the child that asks, can I have some ice cream, please? Please, mom, please, dad, can I have a bowl of ice cream? And you say, yes, after you finish your dinner. True or false, having ice cream after they finish their dinner is better for them than eating nothing than ice cream. Oh, well, yes, it's true. Now, pretend that you're a child. True or false, eating your dinner first and then having ice cream is better than having just ice cream alone. What's well, false? That's an example. The parent gives to the child that for which they ask or something better. But the child is so singularly focused on the one thing they think they want that they don't have the ability to see or understand that what is being given to them ends up being better for them. Eat your vegetables, Johnny. But I don't like broccoli. It's good for you. You'll thank me later when you're a good, healthy adult. Okay? So this is how it works. Now here's a real-life example. You have a friend. Your friend is diagnosed with cancer. Lifelong friend, someone you've known since childhood, that you've spent time with every week, you get together for brunch, you talk on the phone at least three times a week, in addition to your face-to-face -face meeting down at Paula's Cafe. You find out that your friend has cancer. In the middle of their life, they have four kids. And when they're diagnosed, it's stage four. 
What do you pray for? God's will be done. Okay, that's very pious of you, Jim. What is God's will? False, you do know. You do know what God's will is. God's will is that the sinner would turn from his wicked ways and live. Lisa. That very same thing has happened in Tarkville, and uh, the mother of a six-year-old man that passed away had four sons, and his mother and father are still alive. And she said, number one, God will either take him to heaven mm-hmm. or leave him here with us. Mm-hmm. He chose to take him. Yes. And that was very hard, you know, for a parent that's 80 years old. It is. Your answers so far, both of them, have been good. But unfortunately, you're not saying what I want you to say. You're not wrong. You're just not using my words. (laughs) Here's what I wanted you to say. You pray for healing. Well, I didn't say she. Well, sure, but I understand. And she was trying to be, I guess, practical in a sense. Yep. Yep. So, but just praying for healing could be either way. Exactly. Because he's you're tracking. <laughs> you're getting what I'm saying. So you pray for your friend, and you pray day and night for the healing of this friend, and then your friend dies. Did God listen to your prayers, or did He abandon you? He listened. Sometimes you don't know what you're asking for. And sometimes you, like that kid who wants a bowl of ice cream without eating his supper, are so singularly focused on the one thing you think you want and the one thing you think your words mean that you lose sight of everything else. And then when you don't get that one bowl of ice cream, well, it doesn't matter how nutritious this supper is, and it doesn't matter how much my parents love me, they're terrible people, they don't listen, this is a ridiculous charade of a meal because ice cream is far better. And the temptation is always to think that God doesn't listen, that God doesn't care. Or, heaven forbid, that God doesn't even exist and that you've been wasting all of this time. But the fact of the matter is that God does listen and that God delights in your fervent prayer and that you prayed and desired healing and were so hurt by the hurt of that person that you saw that despite the words that your mouth vocalized, the inutterable prayer of your heart was that God would deliver that person from suffering. And in death, what has he done? He has delivered that person from suffering. He has healed that person in a way unimaginable. It doesn't make it any easier for the ones who are left behind. Surely. She didn't just want him to suffer Well, yeah. And that's also very pious, but I'm sure it still hurt her. Oh my, yes. You never get over that. You never get over the death of a loved one. There's always a wound in your heart, and the wound never fully heals. It always bleeds just a little bit, and some days it bleeds a little more than other days, but it's always there. But it doesn't mean God doesn't listen to your prayers. And ultimately, the best healing that you could possibly have is to fall asleep in Christ. (coughs) To be separated from all of the pain and sorrows of this life. To be passed through, to to, uh, pass through, excuse me, the veil of tears. And to await that glorious resurrection from the dead and that wonderful reunion in the kingdom of heaven. Does God hear your prayers? Absolutely he does. And even when you don't know what to pray for, when you use that name that he has given you, when you pick up that business card that he handed you and said, hey, here's my number, call me anytime. And you say, "Uh, I think I'm going to do this today. And you pick it up and you call him. It doesn't even ring before he picks it up. Hey, I've been waiting for you. 
What do you need? I'm here for you. That's what the second commandment is all about. You have my name. Use it for the, reason, the purposes that I have given it to you. You have a power. Use your power responsibly. Like, you know, uh, Spider-Man, with, with great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, that's the truth even in the life of a Christian. With great power that you have, you also have a great responsibility. First of all, that you should pray. Again, if the church doesn't pray for the world, who will? Nobody will. So exercise your responsibility and do it. Secondly, use your power wisely. And don't pray that God would send the guy who cut you off in traffic to burn in hell for eternity. Don't ever pray that God would damn somebody because you have the power to ask him to do it and he will listen to you. So be responsible. And finally, as we talked about before, everything with God is a relationship. Everything is relational. The language is relational. The acts are relational. When's the last time you saw a marriage succeed when a husband and a wife never once spoke to one another? Think about that. There has to be communication. When you're upset and hurt, you have to take it to God. You can't just bottle it up inside because the deeper down you push it and the harder you bottle it up, the further away you'll get from him. And he sits there going, no, 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 come talk to me. Come on, come on, come on. And you're going, no, I just, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then before you know it, you look over your shoulder and he's a mile away, standing there going, come on. So exercise your responsibility and your rights and use your power, trusting always that God will give you that for which you ask for something better. Questions? say, this is my tip to you, when you do your devotions, don't pray in your heart, pray out loud so your ears can hear what your mouth is praying. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really awkward because nobody likes to listen to themselves. But do it. Read your readings out loud so your ears can hear what your mouth is saying. Say your prayers out loud so your ears can hear and that the words that you speak might reinforce and solidify and strengthen your faith. Anything else? Questions, concerns, comments. Okay, we'll see you at the high altar.